That is a grand, grand morning. Stacy and I have been talking about this for a while. This day was going to come and thrilled it was today. Hey, let me pray again just so I can slow down. Uh, Lord, as uh, Mark mentioned, your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And Lord, all of us who've been brought into your family through the saving work of Christ and the power and presence of your Holy Spirit know that truth, that your mercies are new every morning. Your faithfulness is great. It's your grace in Christ that saved us and takes us all the way home. Uh, We ask that as we're in your word this morning that you make real to us uh, the reality of Christ and the fullness of your promises. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, We're in Psalm 46 this morning. If you have your Bibles or your apps, you can turn there now. That's where we'll park. Martin Luther wrote this of Psalm 46. Uh, We sing this psalm to the praise of God because God is with us and powerfully and miraculously preserves and defends his church and his word against all fanatical spirits, against the gates of hell, against the implacable hatred of the devil, and against all the assaults of the world, the flesh, and sin. Kind of his brief summary. Alan Ross introduces this song this way. Because God is with his people, providing them with safety and strength, they need not fear any calamity that threatens to destroy them, for they may rest assured that the Lord will bring an end to all war and devastation. That would sort of be the ultimate fulfillment of of what God does on our behalf. He ends all warfare. We're going to look at the song in three sections, verses 1 through 3. God is a refuge in natural disasters. We'll we'll talk about this, and then we'll qualify it a little bit as we look at the next set of verses. Um, 4 through 7, God is a refuge in man-made disasters, political, military trials, And then last, verses 8 through 11, God will bring an end to all war and all threats. Uh, Like the other psalms we've been in this month, Psalm 46 has an introduction to the choir master of the sons of Korah, of or four. This was written to be sung in the temple in Jerusalem. Excuse me. It says, according to Alamoth, that's a new word for us in this series of psalms. Um, You know, many of the words, descriptive words used, instructional words, in the Psalms, we're not actually sure what they mean. The guess on this one is that it's either sung at a higher octave or it was accompanied by an instrument that was playing at a higher register. And it is a song. So verses one through three. And this song starts off with a bang. God is our refuge and strength. Uh, If you're looking for something to memorize, Psalm 46 would be a great place to go. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, always present, ever present in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. So you start off with a bang. There's this dramatic declaration, God is our refuge and strength. It's a fact, and his confidence is in this statement of fact. God himself is for us. God himself is our shelter 
from the storms and assaults of life. God Himself is strength in our weakness. God Himself is with us in every trial and trouble, and therefore our help. All that follows flows from the fact that God is for me. God is for us. God is our help, our shield, our fortress, our strength. So all of life is seen from that perspective. And friends, it's not, it's not, the psalmist is not boasting in anything that he had in and of himself. He's not boasting anything he or the nation could provide. It has nothing to do with natural resources, talents, intellect, inclinations. It has everything to do with God himself. So the entire focus is on the fact that God is our refuge and strength. And from that fact, he goes to verse 2. Because... God is our refuge and strength, that fact, the, the declaration that follows is, we won't fear. So because God is our refuge and strength, very present help in trouble, verse 2, we will not fear. You know, um, if your parents take you to the doctor's office and they tell you you're going to get a, a shot, you know, you might... Uh, I have memories of this, by the way. <laughs> You're going to get another one of those shots you don't like. So, you know, I'm thinking, okay, somebody's, there's, it's going to be a pain. It's going to be a prick. It's going to be a pain. And, and I'll get by it. The psalmist is not thinking of those, those kinds of things. Small things, not that God's unconcerned, but that's not really the frame of reference he's bringing to mind. So look at what he's talking about. He says, we will not fear since God is our refuge and strength. He's always with us to help. When he says we won't fear, he says, verse 2, though the earth gives way. Now, if you're from the West Coast or other parts of the world, you know what this looks like and feels like. This would be like an earthquake. So the psalmist says, because God's with us, we won't fear even if the earth we stand on fails. Even if the very ground I'm standing on is shaking and cracking and failing under my feet, he says, I won't fear because God's with me. Verse 2 continues, he says, though mountains slide into the seas. So you kind of get the picture. This isn't a little thing. This is if your entire world falls apart. If the natural world falls apart. There are movies that try to depict this. If the natural world around you falls apart. <clears throat> in Scripture, mountains are symbols of strength. Uh, you know, the temple in Jerusalem is on Mount Zion. So, you know, the thought there is twofold. One, a mountain's close to heaven, so you're sort of close, geographically, spatially speaking, so to speak. A pagan's worshipped on mountaintops, so I'm high, I'm near God. But the mountain is this image of strength, right? It's a big piece of rock. You know, what can happen to the mountain? But the psalmist says, the earth may shake under my feet. The earth that I'm standing on may fail me. And mountains, everything that looks stable slides into the sea he says and that's okay too we won't fear then either because god's our refuge and strength he says verse three when the oceans roar and foam maybe think of a tidal wave you know you get a tsunami if you get an earthquake you get a tsunami uh, asia had one several years ago now but you know the water just comes in and it doesn't stop and it just keeps coming in or if you picture the raging storms on the sea, by the way, there's just saw uh, last week, there's a photographer in the Great Lakes area. His whole profession has been um, sort of putting up with these freezing temps and taking pictures of the storms. I think it was on Lake Huron. And there's these ridiculous pictures of waves, huge tall waves 
that he's capturing on his camera. And it's that thought too. A tsunami may wash in or the waves may be so tall that they're crashing in around me. So you get the picture. The, the psalmist isn't saying, Lord, you're there for me when I get a bruise or a cut. He doesn't leave you. But the psalmist is saying, if everything around me falls apart, if everything I normally trust in is gone, God is my refuge and strength, and so I refuse fear. So because God, therefore, because God is with me, therefore, I refuse failure. That's a pretty good place to start your life, isn't it, or your morning? Because God is my refuge and strength, always present, never leaves, never gone. Therefore, I will not fear, no matter what else is going on around me. All refuges that would normally provide safety are gone. And the psalmist still says, we won't fear because God is with us. God is for us. Look at verses 4 through 7. You get this dramatic turn here. You get this pivot. So the natural world is falling apart. That's the entry. But look at verse 4. We move from raging seas to a life-giving river. Verse 4, there is a river, not a raging sea, but now there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. This is God's house. This is God's dwelling place. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. We're thinking, and no doubt when this was written, for the temple, remember, Jerusalem is God's city, and the temple is God's house. So the psalmist is thinking, he's writing about the temple and the city of God in his day. That is Jerusalem, that is the temple on Mount Zion. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Uh, verse 6, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And that Hebrew term, Selah, probably another instruction. And it's thought it probably means pause or stop or meditate on this. So the song moves away from the raging seas to the city of God. Now, you know, Jerusalem has no river. It's in the mountains. There's no river there. They do have the Gihon Spring. And that's a spring of water on the east side of the city. And when King Hezekiah knew the Assyrians were going to come in and invade, King Hezekiah, famously, had a channel cut. And it took the waters from the Gihon Spring, and it channeled it underground through the city, and it comes out at the Pool of Siloam. So it didn't matter what was going on. By the way, this still flows today. It didn't matter what went on. It didn't matter if there was an army encamping around the city. The city always had this fresh, life-giving water. It was there in God's city. It was always there with them. Now, it may be that the psalmist is describing that fresh water supply as a river. Might be. Whether that's the case or not, the contrast here is between the destruction of the raging seas in verses 2 and 3 and the peace and life that's present inside God's city. So instead of the raging oceans overflowing me, I'm in God's city near his house, and I've got life-giving water instead. Not a raging sea, but life-giving water. Now, verses 4 and 5 describe life inside God's city. This would at least ideally mean the city of Jerusalem. In the place God lives, think of the temple in Jerusalem, there's water for life, there's God himself, 
it's God's presence that means those who dwell there have an immovable, unchangeable hell. So get this image in your mind. There's a river in a city where God lives. There's a river in a city where God lives. And then if you like, uh, turn to Ezekiel 47. This imagery of a river running through the city of God brings up some prophetic passages I just want to touch on because I think the song leads us there. In Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48, Ezekiel has this very lengthy vision and he sees a, a version of Jerusalem and Judah and the temple that have never existed historically. And so he measures the temple and he describes where the prince lives, the descendants of David, and where the temple's located in the city and how the tribes are, are aligned, not in the ways that they have been historically. None of this has been seen. It's understood to be prophetic of a, of a time and a place that hasn't yet come. Well, in the midst of that, from the temple, this is Ezekiel 47, 1 through 11, it says, from the temple, a stream runs out to the east of the temple. So it starts in the temple, this river. This stream starts in the temple, and it runs out of the temple, and it runs to the east of the city, and it goes on down to the plains. And the description is, the further it goes, the deeper it gets, and the wider it gets. And there's this repeated phrase that it's abundant in its life, that their fish thrive in this river. And the river is fresh water. And whatever water it comes in contact with, it turns into fresh water too. So here's the image in Ezekiel. From God's temple in his city comes a river of life. And wherever it goes, it brings life. And on both sides of this river, there are trees. And like Psalm 1, these trees never wither. And they're always bearing fruit. And the fruit of these trees brings healing to anyone who eats them. And then turn to Revelation 22. So if you're a Christian, your city isn't ancient historic Jerusalem. It's the new Jerusalem. It's the Jerusalem that in the book of Revelation says, coming down from heaven, the new Jerusalem. But this is in part how it's described. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, just like Isaiah. Temple where God sits, from God's throne. Through the middle of the street of the city, God's city, God's throne, the river starts there. On either side of the river, the tree of life, with 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, always green, never withers, always bearing fruit, the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. Psalm 46 leads you to Ezekiel and ultimately to Revelation 22. That the psalmist is envisioning this place where God lives and everything about it speaks of life. Fresh water, God's presence, the safety of, of being and living in God's city. And you remember in Revelation, it says that this city, this new Jerusalem, nothing harmful ever comes. There's no sin, there's no element, there's no trace of anything deficient in the city you and I call home in the future. The new Jerusalem, the eternal city of the living God, is said to have a river, not just a river, but a river whose source is the throne of God. Our future home is that city in Christ's presence. I want to spend a little bit of time looking at verse 6 and, and uh, verses 2 and 3 as well. So verse 6 says, The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts. So nations rage, 
kingdoms totter, God utters, utters his voice and the earth melts. If you look at verses 2 and 3, verse 6 is an echo of what's already been said. So, nations like the oceans may rage. Nations like the ocean may rage. Think of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples devise a vain thing? A messianic psalm about Jesus and about the nations raging against him. It's quoted in Acts. Also, though, powerful kings and their kingdoms, like mountains, may totter and fall. Think of wars and armies, nations rising and nations falling. It may be that the natural disasters of verses 2 and 3 are, in fact, simply a poetic description of verse 6. So on one hand, the psalmist may literally be saying, if the, if the physical world I inhabit falls apart, I'm okay, because God's my refuge. It seems likely, and it's my take, that it's a poetic way of saying, if the political, material, human world around me falls apart, I'm okay. Raging, unstable waters are an image of the nations of the world in Scripture. Just as mountains are a symbol of strength, raging seas are an image of the unstable nations of the world. So, for instance, this is Daniel 7. Daniel 7, verse 2. Daniel sees in this vision uh, by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. So, I'm looking out from shore and I'm seeing the waves of the ocean. They're disturbed and they're roiled and the wind is blowing and the waves are growing. And four great beasts came up out of the sea. Now, if you know in Daniel, uh, one of the themes, key themes in the book of Daniel is that Daniel is seeing the nations of the world. And so this is simply one of the iterations where Daniel is talking about four kingdoms that are going to arise. Babylon that he lives in is the first. But three additional nations and empires are going to rise afterwards. And in this, the waters, they're not peaceful, guys. They're turbulent. Because guess what? The nations of the world are always turbulent. And the empires are described in Daniel 7. They're beastly. They're animalistic. They're not glorious. They're savage and they're beastly. And they're described leopards, bears, they're destructive. That's the thought. They're not, uh, we don't look at these images and think, I want to be like that. We think they're powerful, but they're inherently destructive and predatory. And that's definitely the history of the world and the empires that have risen and fallen. If you go to Revelation 12, you see the same theme. Uh, Revelation 12 ends, and, and this goes right into Revelation 13. The Apostle John sees the dragons. Uh, Satan standing on the shore of the sea. It's great, it's great poetic uh, language. And then when chapter 13 starts, he says, I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with crowns on its hordes and blasphemous, blasphemous names. Similar to Daniel, John says, I'm seen in this vision and Satan, the god of this world who oversees the nations of this world broadly, all under, of course, the sovereignty of God. He says, I see this beast coming out, just like Daniel 7, and this is the nation, the empire that contains and that Antichrist rules over. And where's it coming from? It's coming out of the roiling waters of the raging nation. Same thing. By the way, it doesn't end there. Revelation 17, 1, when John sees Babylon the Great, the false church, 
the great harlot, where does he see her? She's sitting on many waters. She sits over the nation. She has power and influence over the nations. So in Psalm 46, this thought of waters, roiling waters, crashing waves, it's likely that it's meant to tell us this is what life in this world is like. That the nations are never calm, they're never stable. Nations are always rising against other nations. When, uh, whether we think of natural disasters and catastrophes or man-made ones, the point is God is with us, the God of Jacob is here to keep us. So the world politically, militarily is falling apart. I'm not going to fear. Uh, the world materially, naturalistically is falling apart. I'm not going to fear. Now I want to qualify this just a little bit too. Uh, it's said rightly that all scripture is written for us, but not all scripture is written to us. So we're reading a song that was written for the Jewish nation to sing in the temple under the old covenant. So God's promise and their expectation of what God would provide for them had to do primarily with life on the earth. A long life with material wealth, lots of kids and grandkids, a freedom from oppression, physical oppression from other kingdoms in the land of promise. That, that's the covenant. That's the old covenant. So when Israel sang this song, they're primarily thinking about God's physical material safety for them in the land of promise. <clears throat> what Christians are enjoined under a different covenant. We live under a new covenant. It's a better covenant in, in every way, but it's not the same expectation as the Jews had. So, like the Jews, but better, Christians have the promise of God's presence with us. And we would say with us not only at all times, in all places. You remember for the Jews, if they weren't near the Ark of the Covenant, whether it was the tent early on or the temple, they're away from God. It's not that God has been diminished and that He's not still omnipresent, but for them the thought was God's presence is there at the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. And so I want to be, physically, I want to be with God in His city there with the Ark. But for Christians, there's no sense of limitation on geography for us. God's with us now at all times and in all places. Matthew 28, 20. I'm with you always to the end of the age. John 14, 18, and 23. Jesus said, I won't leave you as, as orphans. I, I'm leaving temporarily and physically, but you won't be orphans. You won't be alone. He says, I'll come to you by the Holy Spirit. We'll come and make our home with you. So as Christians, you are God's home. So God is, by definition, He's always with you. You can't shake God if you wanted to. He's with you and He's in you. Amen. Romans 8.35, who or what can separate us from the love of Christ? What, where, uh, where's the separation between my relationship with Christ and something that can come in and break that relationship? You remember Paul says, well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you describe or where you go. High or low, angels or demons, future or past, nothing can separate you. God is always with you, always with you, always present. Unlike the Jews, Jesus has promised Christians not long life in a land of plenty with material blessing and children and grandchildren, though many of us enjoy these blessings and they're blessings and we're glad for them, every one of them. The example of Jesus and the apostles in Acts 
is suffering and persecution. And what Jesus has promised his followers today is persecution. John 16, verse 2 and verse 33. Whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. Whoever kills you, my followers. And what happened all but John of the apostles. Judas hung himself, of course. The other apostles were all murdered, uh, martyred. They were all slain for faith in Christ. <clears throat> verse 33 there. In the world you will have peace and prosperity. Peace now. Peace in our time, Chamberlain. No. In this world, you will have tribulation. Mark 10, verse 30, in forsaking our lives here, Christians gain, now positively, family members in the family of God and eternal life. That's what we get as Christians. And by the way, persecutions. 1 Peter 2, 21, when we suffer for doing good, we are simply following Jesus' example. We're simply following Jesus' lead. That's the thing. It's not strange. Peter says, don't think it's strange when you encounter persecution. This is the norm. For Christians, the promise of God's presence in the face of trials and persecution is primarily about the preservation of our faith, not necessarily the extension of our life. Remember for me always, one of the acid tests of what someone is preaching is how does it preach in China? How does it preach in Africa? How does it preach in North Korea? So... Open Doors World Watch, they catalog uh, the treatment of Christians around the world. This is very briefly, this is from their catalog from last year. Last year, and by the way, these, are, these numbers are assumed to be low, but they're definable. They're provable, okay? The likelihood is that the numbers are much higher. Last year, over 5,600 Christians murdered for their faith because they're Christians. 2,100 churches attacked, 4,500 Christians detained and arrested for their faith because where they live, persecution is the norm. You know, freedom is not the norm. Uh, green lights and blue skies is not the norm. Persecution is the norm. Christians can face harm and death from natural and man-made disasters because God is with us, because to live is Christ and to die is gain, Philippians 1.21. So we want to qualify, what does this look like in my life? If you've been a Christian any length of time at all, you know that your troubles don't go away because you're a Christian. And you know that the trials of life don't go away because you're a Christian, because you have eternal life and your sins are forgiven. Because trouble's part of this world. And doubly so for Christians, because this is the world that rejected Christ. Do we know the stability that is, that is God with us? that Jesus will never leave us, never forsake us. By the way, this is only true for Christians. When the waves come in, if you're not a Christian, good luck. You know, when the, when the door on the ark closed, nobody survived. And this earth gets burned up. And if you don't know Christ, you go to hell forever. This is only true for Christians. And if you don't know Jesus, you need to get acquainted. Jesus said he gives peace, but it's not because our lives are trouble-free. It's because he is with us. It's because Christ is with us. Today, God's dwelling place is in us personally. And it's with us corporately in the church. We have the presence of God with us always so that no matter what our own raging seas or earthquakes look like, we can experience God's abundance and peace. 
Uh, what are our troubles? Everybody's got them. Challenges, trials. Are we refusing fear by entrusting ourselves to God, who is our refuge, fortress, river of life, city of refuge? Is that what we're doing? Guys, this may look a little different. May, the experience of what this looks like for us may vary. You know, what, is it, what does it look like to you? What does it feel like to me that Christ is with me? So there should be a sense of, of comfort. There should be a sense of confidence. You know what I mean? That uh, I may not understand what's going on. I may not be able to change it. But if I know, but, but God is with me. God has promised to sustain me no matter how bad things get. I can go through it. Uh, we talked about this at uh, our dear sister Brenda's funeral. Uh, our, our friend Brenda lived with a lot of pain. Pain was a normal part of her life when we were talking about the gospel. And Brenda, we said one of the lessons from Brenda's life was life is pain. Life is pain, but Christ is with us. There's a verse I'll read here in a little bit that just brings that home to me that he's with us in the pain. Whatever the challenge or the trial is, he's with us in it. And guys, we need to experience that. We have to have some sense of that. If you're in a trial and what you feel is despair or hopelessness, you're losing the value of the truth. Because if I know Christ is with me, he's my refuge and strength, and it can't be otherwise, then no matter how bad the bottom's falling out, the earth is shaking, the mountains are sliding, the sea is raging, I still know, Lord, I'm okay. I'm okay. Not because the circumstances are okay. I'm okay because I'm yours and you're with me. We can live this. Those last four verses, of verses 8 through 11, the psalmist says, Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. Now, this is an inherent destruction. It qualifies in verse 9. This is the desolation he makes. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, he shatters the spear, he burns the chariots with fire. All the implements of war, when Jesus comes, they're destroyed. Then he says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations, among the raging seas, the turbulent oceans. God says, nope, I'll be exalted there too. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So verses 8 and 9, God brings an end to war on the earth. You know, there hasn't been peace among nations since uh, Cain and Abel. If there's two people, there's, there's, there's a fight, isn't there? That's going to end. Isaiah 2 verse 4 and Micah 4 verse 3 say the same thing, that after the second coming, when Jesus rules from Jerusalem, spears are turned into pruning hooks. So what was used to harm someone else is, is now used to harvest fruit. Spears are turned into pruning hooks. Nations don't lift up swords against other nations, and no one learns war. There are no war colleges when Jesus rules the earth. There's no need because Jesus is supremely ruling over all. The peace that's the norm in the city of God becomes the norm across the earth when Jesus reigns. And this is another theme in Scripture. What you see, you remember in the Garden of Eden, so the earth is a big earth, and the Garden of Eden is this little place in it. But what you see is then that image is then highlighted in the temple itself, and you get to Revelation, and the whole thing looks like the Garden of Eden because it just gets bigger and better. That's God's development, so to speak, of that same theme, that we're going to live in a place like the Garden, only the Garden's every place, everywhere. 
Uh, verse 10 is the only re appropriate response to the truth. Verse 10, be still and know that I am God. Uh, in verse 1, God's our refuge and strength. Uh, verse 7 and 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So verse 10, be still and know that I'm God is the only appropriate response to that. Because God is God, because you're in relationship with the Lord. Now, <laughs> do you know how to be still? This is not a rhetorical question. Do you know how to be still? So uh, my, my daughters have brought a funky uh, song back from Bible camp one summer. And uh, sometimes you're glad you heard it and sometimes you're not, you know. So the song went like this. Uh, Stop and let me tell you what the Lord has done for me. I'm not going to sing it. But stop and let me tell you what the Lord has done for me. So in our house, this became one of the helping lines. So it would go like this. I'd say, hey, Rachel, stop and let me tell you what the Lord has done for me. And so you never knew when you were going to get busted. Someone would call your name, they'd get your attention, and then they'd say, stop. And your first instinct is, what? You know, what did I do wrong? And then they'd finish the line. And let me tell you what the Lord has done for me. This command to be still... Guys, you don't get the benefit if you can't do this. You don't get the benefit. Um, we've had uh, three dogs at our house in our marriage. And uh, if you've trained dogs, you know exactly what this looks like. So uh, I, we would train the dogs to, to stop and to sit and to lay and to stay. Right, because if, if my dog's doing what my dog wants to do, right, it's just chasing anything it, it wants, anything that grabs its stand, any new smell, you know, anything like that. So what we would do when we train the dogs, I'm thinking of Jordy, our, our Airedale was our last dog. Jordy wants to be up and about and doing. And so I'd say, Jordy, sit. And I make her sit. I've got her attention. I say, Jordy, lay. And then I make her stay right there until her mind's no longer about what she wants to run and do differently until she's just waiting for me. And then I say, okay, heal or come or, or go play. That's the thought here. If you, if you don't get still, if you don't reorient by stilling your heart, stilling your mind, stopping, you don't get the benefit of the truth because the mind... The thoughts like the raging seas, they're raging. I'm just thinking of all the trouble. I'm thinking, wondering, how am I going to make this thing work? What am I going to do? How do I fix this? See, God's saying, don't go there. Just stop and be still so that you can know. So that if you'll stop and you'll settle in and you'll come to that realization, the God of all the earth is with me. The God who spoke the heavens into existence is in me. Jesus and the Spirit and the Father are all with me by the Spirit's doing. That God is really, unless he can lie, he's really in me and he's really with me in this thing. The earth's shaking, the mountains are sliding, the seas are raging, and I'm still. You know, there's a lovely song uh, 130, 131, I have still, uh, uh, like a weaned child on its mother's breast, I've quieted, I've composed my soul 
See, I'm at rest. That's what the psalmist is saying. You don't get the benefit of this if you can't stop, if you can't still your soul, if you can't meditate on what God says is true. Mike, I'm the God of all gods, and I'm with you, and I've got this, whatever it is, whatever that is. I've got that. That word, the Hebrew means uh, to be idle. It means to go limp. It means like my dog, to stay. I'm not running around. I'm not trying to fix everything. I'm just quieting my heart in God's presence. Lord, what have you said? What can I count on? You're with me. That's the thought. Be still because the God of all powers is yours. You're a citizen of his city. You live under his benevolent rule. Be still. Because the God you know is the one who created the mountains and the seas, and he's able not only to topple them and stir up their raging, but also to calm and quiet them. My favorite example of this is out of Mark's gospel. This is Mark 4, verses 35 through 41. There's similar uh, takes, but only Mark has this language. So Jesus is with the boys in a boat going across the Sea of Galilee. And it says, a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But Jesus is in the stern asleep on a cushion. God has checked out. What is going on? They woke him, and they said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? And he woke, and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, this is what Jesus said to the sea, Peace, be still. Stop. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, he says to us, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Do you not get it? You know, they say, Who is this guy? The wind and the waves obey him. That language, by the way, is out of the Old Testament. It's in multiple places that God speaks and stills the ocean waves. He has that power. But that's this example. They're literally among a tossing, turning, raging sea. And Jesus says, peace, be still. And they start to get a clue who it is that's with them. Who is their refuge and their help and their strength in those raging seas. It's God himself with them in Christ. Be still and know that I am God. So what should we fear if God is with us? What should we fear Isaiah 41.10, right along the same line. Fear not. Why? Why, God? Because I'm with you. Be not dismayed. Don't be discouraged. Why, God? Because I'm your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. It's not you and your abilities. It's me and mine. And I'm with you, and we will get through this. I'll strengthen you. Verse 11 concludes, The God of hosts, the God of, by the way, when you read that God of hosts, it's an anemic word, and I hate that they use that. It's the God of armies. It's the God of armies. So remember a week ago, I think we talked about Revelation 19, and the image of the second coming there is Jesus in all his glory, in all his power, on a white war horse returning to the earth, to the Mount of Olives, to put down all the, the rebellion of the nations and the armies of the earth. Amen. But who's behind him? The armies of heaven. The saints and the angels of heaven are riding behind him, coming back with him. So when this says, 
the God of hosts, guys, we're thinking armies. So it's not just that God who's omnipotent is with us. It's God who has every army force, every military might you can think of, so to speak, that's coming, that's with you also. Nobody can overcome him or his army. When it feels like life is war, we're losing. God says he's the God of armies and he's coming to earth to put down all rebellion and set up his glorious kingdom. And I'm right on time. I'm closing with this. These are comments from Kendall Easley's in the Holman Bible Commentary. And we start with Martin Luther and that's where we're ending. The year 1527 was the most difficult of Martin Luther's life. After 10 demanding years of leading the Reformation, a dizzy spell overcame him in the middle of a sermon on April 22nd, forcing him to stop preaching. Luther feared for his life. On July 6th, while eating dinner with his friends, he felt an acute buzzing in his ear and lay down, again convinced that he was at the end of his life. And by the way, he's going to live for almost another 20 years. He partially regained his strength, but a debilitating discouragement set in as a result. In addition, heart problems and severe intestinal complications escalated the pangs of death. Now listen to Luther. This is his description. In, I'm, I'm quoting Luther here. He says, I spent more than a week in death and hell. That's what it felt like. The earth is shaking. The mountains are sliding. In hell, my entire body was in pain and I still tremble. When I think about what that felt like, I still tremble today completely abandoned by Christ, which is an impossibility, but that's what it felt like. I labored under the vacillations and storms of desperation and blasphemy against God, Martin Luther. He's a disciple in the boat and he's telling God, you, you're doing this wrong. You need to change what you're doing. You got this wrong. Past that quote, worse, the dreaded black plague had entered Germany and spread into Wittenberg. Many people fled, fearing for their lives. Yet Luther and his wife Katie remained, believing it was their duty to care for the sick and dying. Although Katie was pregnant with their second child, Luther's house was transformed into a hospital where he watched many friends die. Then without warning, Luther's one-year-old son Hans became desperately ill. With death surrounding him on every side, Luther was driven to seek God. Luther was driven to be still and know that God is God. Seek the refuge in God as never before, and Psalm 46 became the strength of his soul. He dug into Psalm 46 when this was going on. As a result, Luther expounded its truths into the hymn for which he is most famous, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Its majestic, thunderous proclamation of God, who is our all-sufficient refuge in our weakest moments, has become the enduring symbol of the Reformation. If Luther hadn't gone through that experience in life, he wouldn't have known the value of Psalm 46. But he went through it and he could look back and he said, God was with me. I wasn't faithful to God. He's blaspheming God. He looks back and says, I was cursing God. But God never left him. And so out of that experience, he pens, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. This is echoing Psalm 46. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. You can take that to the bank. You can live on that. You can live out of Psalm 46. Well, rise with me if you would. And uh, let's read briefly from Psalm 46. And uh, we're going to uh, worship together in song from there, okay?
Let's read together. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into 